Welcome to The Cantankerous Catholic with Joe Sixpack, the every Catholic guy. Listen to Joe tackle the really tough moral issues, current events, and politics from a Catholic perspective. Now here's Joe Sixpack, the every Catholic guy. Hello again, Sixpack Warriors. Welcome back to The Cantankerous Catholic, episode 153. I interviewed Stephen Brady of Roman Catholic Faithful last week. He dropped a huge bombshell story about the Vatican and some individual bishops that he's in the middle of investigating. Trust me, you're going to want to tell your faithful Catholic friends and family about this episode. Did you know that statistics from CARA say that 70% of Catholics get 100% of their Catholic information from your parish Sunday bulletin? After my pastor mentioned to me that he'd like to find a way to catechize the whole parish without setting up a class, this little statistic inspired an idea. With my pastor's permission, I began writing a bulletin insert called What We Believe, Why We Believe It. Since it's merely inserted into the bulletin, it's intrusive, meaning that parishioners have to remove it to read the bulletin. In the process, they read this little thumbnail catechism lesson, and they let Father know that they love them. You see, I teach the faith with stories, anecdotes, and parables. They're not your typically boring catechesis. And best of all, I teach why we're supposed to believe the church's teachings, which affirms your parishioners in their faith. As a convert and consecrated member of the Marian Catechist Apostolate under the direction of Raymond Leo Cardinal Burke, I teach the entire faith, even tackling the really tough moral issues. You can learn more by watching an 11-minute video by clicking the link in my show notes that says Six-Pack System Bulletin Inserts. So you can try it without risk, you can get it for three months. You can even download three samples while you're on the page with the video. This is ideal for good priests who want to help their parishioners become fully catechized, and a lot of lay people get a subscription for their parish as a way to support the parish without having to give the bishop any of their money. To learn more, click on the link in my show notes that says Six-Pack System Bulletin Inserts. It just requires 11 minutes of your time. Stephen Brady is the founder of Roman Catholic Faithful and an Army veteran. He began his organization back in 1995, and I've followed him right from the beginning. Fact is, he's the father of the modern-day resistance movement. There really couldn't have been a Michael Voris, Michael Hitchborn, or the cantankerous Catholic without him first paving the way. 
When Stephen began, I thought he took things a bit far at times, but later I realized that he understood better than anyone else just how deep the rot and corruption is in our hierarchy. Some of the bishops hate me. They all hate Church Militant. But Stephen Brady? They all hate and fear him. I'm just a rabid squirrel. Michael Voris and his team dig for the truth and present it the way genuine journalists are supposed to do. Stephen Brady is like a 70-pound pit bulldog with a bone in his mouth. Try to take that bone, you'll lose an arm. That's why the hierarchy fear him. Because the vast majority of six-pack warriors have never heard of Stephen Brady or Roman Catholic faithful, the first two questions in the interview were only asked so you could get a feel for him and his organization. His answer to my third question will blow your hair back. If you heard Stephen speak in Baltimore at the prayer rally during the USCCB meeting there, you already know some of what he's going to say. I believe he gives much more information in this interview than he did in Baltimore, though. For those of you who haven't heard him, be prepared to hear about the most disgustingly criminal scandal you can imagine being perpetrated by so-called men of God in the Catholic hierarchy. With our prayers and a little luck, the next presidential administration may finally be able to break up this evil criminal empire. Let's hear what Stephen has to say, then I'll be back with a couple of comments. Hey, six-pack warriors, we have Stephen Brady of Roman Catholic Faithful with us today. Stephen, how are you? Real good, sir. Thank you very much. Good. We're happy to have you here. Steve, I've been following you since 1995 when you began, so you're actually the father of the modern-day resistance movement. But very few six-pack warriors are familiar with you or your organization, Roman Catholic Faithful. Why don't you help the six-pack warriors get to know you a little bit by telling us a bit about who Stephen Brady is? Well, uh, I'm a disabled veteran. I was drafted during the Vietnam War and was in the construction business much of the time. Uh, after I got out of the service. I was trained as a federal officer originally. Uh, about 1995, seven children, wife and uh, seven children. The local public schools is where it all started because uh, there was a problem with pornographic sex education. But the problem came in with the fact that most of the school board members were Catholic, and one of the teachers responsible for the most horrific material was a Catholic uh, education teacher up at the local parish. So after I went to the parish priest and the bishop in Springfield, Illinois, Bishop Daniel Ryan, Father Thomas Halinga, and I couldn't get any help, I explained to them that your parishioners, uh, your Catholics who are in key positions of the parish, are pushing a pornographic sex education material. Well, I ended up writing to all the clergy of the diocese, and that's when I started to find out from the clergy that our bishop was a predatory homosexual. And uh, I'm my father's son, uh, may he rest in peace, and he always taught me. When you've got something like that, you don't let it go. And so I started to investigate. And I found out just how bad uh, Bishop Ryan was in his uh, picking up street kids and uh, having uh, paying them for sexual favors, coercing clergy into sexual favors. So I just started to go public and started to investigate and get statements. I found a lot of the street kids that he was paying for sexual favors. That's where I learned the horrific story of some of these kids and what they'd been through prior to ending up on the street. But at that point, I was somewhat naive, and I felt, surely I'll get this information to the hierarchy, and they'll do something about it. Well, I found out and began to learn the truth. The hierarchy was so corrupt. I mean, uh, the Vatican ordered me to shut my mouth at one time. Cardinal George offered me a relationship with the hierarchy if I'd be silent. And uh, Bishop George Lucas, now Archbishop George Lucas, after Ryan retired, basically uh, told me my family would never be welcome at any parish if I didn't stop. And he, he threatened my life in a sense that he told me, he said, Stephen, you know what you do is dangerous. And I took that as a threat. And from then on, I just pushed ahead. And uh, I formed a corporation early on because people were sending me $5, $10 donations. And I had to report it. I never expected it, expected it to grow to the, to the corporation it became. And uh, there was a brief time, we were timed out in 2009, 
And then we came back once the McCarrick scandal and the Pennsylvania grand jury came back, but we're back full speed today. We don't do fundraising. We don't have a, we don't, you know, do uh trying to gather new members. They just come on automatically. Church Militant has given me a lot of coverage, LifeSite News, Lepanto Institute's done an interview, and we have gotten some good press. So uh, now people realize I was dead on right back then. And uh, now we're working on uh, money laundering and uh, the following the money within the corrupt hierarchy, if you will. Yeah, I remember back in the late 90s, you were pretty much considered a nut among the uh, both the laity and the clergy. Uh, <laughs> but I know that your name invoked fear in these bishops because <laughs> I had mentioned your name to several of them and you should you should have seen the look on their faces. <laughs> Steve, my listeners need to know a bit more about Roman Catholic faithful. Tell us the well, I guess you've already touched on the history, but the purpose of your group, some of the things Roman Catholic faithful's accomplished and your future plans for the organization. Okay, we started out just trying to concentrate on one diocese, Springfield Diocese, Bishop Daniel Ryan, and get him removed. And over the over a span of time, we learned that uh, the corruption, you know, went on to the hierarchy. So we included investigating the Catholic hierarchy and liturgical abuse. And uh, we've come to the point now where we're dealing strictly with the cor- corruption of the Catholic hierarchy because. In most places, if not a majority, there's no faith left within the hierarchy. They can't be Catholic and do the things they do. So right now we're following the money because as horrific as the sex abuse is, and it is horrific, it's just a symptom of the bigger corruption. Because what I tell folks is any member of the hierarchy who does not have a true love of Christ and the church and act accordingly has entered the hierarchy as part of a criminal organization. You know, by that I mean, if, if you're not there to save souls, that that's what your that's what your title demands. Then you're there for the power and the money and the the uh, drugs, the sex abuse, the homosexual activity. It's all part of it that comes with that kind of uh, corruption and the power and the money. And so now we started following the money because uh, we realized it was a much bigger problem than just sex abuse and liturgical abuse. And so that's what we're on to right now is following the money. We are a 501c3 not-for-profit corporation. We are being sued, actually, by one priest out in uh, California. I'm not going to mention his name. Paul Jonah is our attorney, (laughs) and uh, he's told me it's an unjust lawsuit, and he'll handle it, but it does cost money, and uh, I don't draw a payroll. We don't have rent to pay. All our money, any donations we get, receive, goes to either our legal defense and or my investigations and uh, the work I do. I'm uh, I'm retired basically from uh, the construction business, but I do, I live on social security and my, I do get a VA disability check. And uh, so that's enough to sustain me. And the good folks out there that send contributions help us uh, cover our, uh, our investigations and our expenses there. Okay, great. The reason I asked you on today is because at the Enough is Enough rally, that rally in Baltimore seemed to have built a lot of momentum among Catholic laity to resist the way things are going in the church. And I wanted to build on that momentum. And at the rally in Baltimore a couple of weeks ago, you dropped a bombshell about corruption at the Vatican. Please tell Six Pack Warriors about that. Well, it started off with an interview I did on uh, Church Militant uh, regarding some hidden corporations I found regarding the U.S. hierarchy. Because of the fact that uh, nothing seemed to be working, I realized that it had to be the power and the money that was corrupting these individuals. I found a uh, some hidden corporations, all legally formed corporations by the Catholic, uh, by some of the bishops. But now what I'm about to tell you, it's not connected to any diocese in any way. They're completely independent, which makes it a little more suspect in my mind, but all legally formed. I found a $9 million building in Omaha that the bishop, a group of bishops own. It's called, it's uh, set up as a uh, self-insurance organization, CMG, 
Catholic Mutual Group, and there's several names it goes under. You can search that on the internet. They have a webpage. Uh, they claim to be a church, and the federal, the IRS has granted them that uh, standing. So therefore, they don't have to file any 990 tax forms. You have no way of finding out where their money comes from or where it goes. That being said, they've got a nine million dollar building. I have seen the. Uh, um, I've got some of the records they did have to file with the Nebraska Secretary of State. And Supich has been on the board, McCarrick, uh, Lucas, uh, all, the, all the big names, Hubbard, uh, a lot of the other bishops. Anyway, when I found this $9 million building they owned, their corporation owned, there's no way to find out where they got this $9 million. It had to come from, uh, obviously, individual dioceses and prisoners. But these uh, self-insurance group they set up, I found several bishops that claim not to have known that the self-insurance group was around, which raises a few more red flags and questions. And I found several affiliate corporations, 10 or 12, that were connected to it, all legally formed. But again, the problem is you have no way of knowing where the money comes from or where it goes. So I, I suspected there was more to this. But during this interview, it caught the attention of a Jordanian family uh, who are now American citizens, nationalized Jordanian, Benjamin uh, Serignani, him and his wife and his family live out in California. They're, they're naturalized citizens. Anyway, Benjamin had a lawsuit filed against uh, the Holy See, the Latin Patriarch of Jerusalem, and the Secretary of State in the Vatican, uh, Perlin. So I found uh, Benjamin and I connected, I was honored that he would talk to me because I thought of, of all the people in this world, there's a Vatican insider, and he gets to talk to me. I mean, I get to talk to him, if you will. And it was just mind-blowing that the good Lord had set this up, and I hope he set it up. But in Benjamin's lawsuit, I've got much more information that's in the lawsuit. Benjamin has thousands of pages that are not filed in the lawsuit, but the lawsuit says it all. The, uh, it's in the San Bernardino, California County, and the documents that have been filed so far are public record. They can be accessed. I have a link that I can, uh, I'll send you later. That being said, so I started to read the documents. I spent a few days at Benjamin's home. I wanted to meet the family and find out about how the people were. Benjamin was, uh, had a very lucrative career within uh, the hotel motel business, a developer, planner, you know, he would run things, clean things up, hotels that were, had a problem. When the, uh, Latin, the former Latin patriarch of Jerusalem, back around 210, 212, somewhere in that area, asked him to help with uh, a college in Jordan, American uh, University in Madaba. Madaba is a town in Jordan where it was set up. They asked uh, Benjamin if he would help and uh, sort of uh, run things, uh, finish the college, uh, the fleet of buses, get it, get it stocked with supplies, and just manage everything. In this, well, one thing that a lot of folks didn't know, Benjamin was related to the former Latin patriarch of Jerusalem. It was a cousin by marriage, and that's why they came to him, apparently. But they gave him the power of attorney for the whole uh, holy, uh, Latin patriarch of Jerusalem, the whole jurisdiction of the Holy Land. And a Latin uh, power of attorney over the college, which was never been done before. I mean, as power of attorney, Benjamin had access to everything and anything, and could could do any transactions for the the Holy Land or what's whatsoever. What a lot of folks didn't realize the fact that the Holy Land, basically the royal family of Jordan, has jurisdiction guardianship over the Holy Land. I think pretty sure it's a political deal set up by the United States and other countries years ago. So during this time, Benjamin's conducting business and operating on his own since he has power of attorney. And that he's contacted by uh, members of the Secretary of State's office and the Latin Patriarch to conduct deals with different entities. And he's starting to get a little bit concerned because some of these corporations and entities he's doing business with at the request of the the Vatican and the, the Latin Patriarch, they, uh, he doesn't know what, what purpose they're serving because they're not connected to the college directly. And he did, uh, he did some deals with uh, an Austrian oil company and a few uh, American oil companies. 
But where he drew the line, he was asked to do a $400 million deal and a $500 million deal with the Chinese, a deal Mm. called Green City, which a Green City was supposedly a project that uh, was going to take place around the college, uh, beautifying a park and that sort of thing, from what I understand. I don't have all the details, but it's stuff that never happened. So Benjamin realized uh, money laundering was involved. These entities were being set up to move money around, money that wasn't coming into the college. And he was conducting business and asked to produce documents and bills for stuff that was never done. So after several years, he went back to the uh, powers that be. Franco, who I think was the archbishop in uh, Jordan, and also the Latin patriarch and uh, Perlin, the secretary of state. He said, I'm not doing this anymore. There's something criminal going on here. It's it's money laundering and uh, other things going on with these entities, with Chinese and communists and what have you. And uh, they stripped him of his power of attorney. Uh, But before this happened, money never came in, they promised, for the college. But being a a good Catholic and honored that they would ask him to do such a thing, a project, he borrowed money on the contracts he had with the the Latin Patriarch and Jordan, and the Jordan uh, University. He, He borrowed money on these contracts. He borrowed money on his own name, his family's name. He went into hock for millions of dollars. So when he finally told them he, he wasn't going to do this anymore, he was paying the bills that the, they weren't paying when they were having him do, these, do this job with the university. So when he went to them and said that uh, he's not going to do this anymore, there's something criminal here, I know it's money laundering involved, he told them that uh, they told him they tore up the contracts, they refused to pay him, and they told him, never. they ordered him never to speak about these deals you've been doing. And also, hierarchy, with the help of the uh, few political powers in Jordan, they confiscated all his property there, his cars, his real estate, his bank accounts, and they really made it impossible for him to, uh, to function. And so he filed a lawsuit in 2016, and which I have the 1,500 pages of documents, I've obtained much more information from uh, Benjamin that aren't in those documents yet, but the documents clearly spell out. The documents alone are enough to, uh, I would think, involve the FBI and the CIA in some kind of investigation. But they directly speak of the money laundering and the transactions taking place. In one one of the documents, a gentleman from uh, California, I'm not going to mention his name here, has a corporation set up in uh, South America and he offers to help uh, provide a special purpose vehicle. I didn't know what this was until I got into this investigation. A special purpose vehicle, SPV, is an entity or a corporation set up to move money around. And also, I found out what an outtaker was. An outtaker is an individual that takes this money that's being laundered and moves it from one place to another. A lot of folks have asked me, what's the purpose of this money laundering? Well, there's a a lot of purposes, but it hides it from uh, its original origin. So in other words, for example, just to make up a hypothetical here, but seems to be part of this, the Vatican answers to no one. There's no record, even the diocese answers to no one, any diocese. There's, there's no record of where their money goes or who it's sent to, except banking records. But if you want to hide those banking records, you transfer it from one point to another. And if an entity, say, for example, if the Chinese wanted to fund a terrorist organization to help disrupt the American government, they could conceivably funnel the money to the Vatican, write it off as a business venture, and then from there, there's no record of where the money goes. I mean, the Vatican has its own banking situation, and it's own, it's, its own country, and there's no... Uh, many uh, What folks don't realize is that uh, in this country in uh, America. It's illegal, for example, I believe, to do business in Venezuela or Cuba or do business with the the Liberation Army or a lot of these uh, terrorist groups. So if if anybody wants to do that, they have to launder the money. They have to go through another another source. So that's where we're at today. And I'm just beginning to scratch the surface on this. But uh, those court documents, those 1,500 pages are available 
And I'm just beginning to go through them. Plus, working with Benjamin, he's made history in a sense that he's forcing the Vatican to have jurisdiction in this country. Oh, two weeks ago, history was made in the sense that the Latin patriarch of Jerusalem was forced to conduct a deposition, be part of a deposition in this country. That has never been done before. So that's, that's I think, a positive sign, but a problem for the Vatican, because uh, now they have to answer to the American courts, which uh, many of your foreign countries, uh, the Vatican has a lot of influence in their different court systems. But here, you know, it, it's uh, much more likely that the truth will come out. Benjamin told me himself, he'll fight till the day he dies to get the truth out regarding this corruption, because now he's he's been disparaged in his own country, Jordan, well, his former country. Uh, he can't go back there. All his property has been confiscated. And Benjamin says he'll go to his death fighting to clear his name and expose this corruption. And that's where we are today. We're just beginning to scratch the surface. And from here, it's uh, I think this is bigger than anything international, bigger than anything this world has ever seen, because it involves the Vatican, so-called men of God, if you will. Is there any doubt in your mind that the Vatican is in the pocket of the Chi uh, communist Chinese. Well, when you say in the pocket, I'm not quite sure, but I think there is a definite connection between the Vatican and the Chinese. And by the fact they're doing business together, you know, when you do a billion-dollar business together, it's a deal that's kept secret. Uh, there's no doubt in my mind uh, they're in bed together. I'm not sure to what degree, but Benjamin has thousands of pages of documents I haven't seen yet. The documents I have seen are sworn statements and the court documents. So there's there's uh, they're public. It's just very few people have accessed them or know how to access them. So no, to your question, no, I think they're in bed with the Chinese. I just don't know to what degree. Well, I I I asked that question because of some of the things you said early early on about this particular scandal, but also because. I've been very suspicious of Francis ever since he sold the church out in China. So, <laughs> I mean, I can't imagine any pope handing the church over to the Chinese government the way he did. Well, let me let me go a little bit further so people can understand a little better where I'm coming from. First of all, I'm not an academic. I'm not a PhD. I don't overthink the situation. I look at it for what it is, black and white, and I go from there. And I think people need to handle it that way. As far as the Pope goes, first of all, you have to realize he's not Catholic. And I'll explain that. He's the Vicar Amen. of Christ, supposed to be the Vicar of Christ. But when Gregory gave Holy Communion to Biden, what did the Pope say? He said, deal with it. You guys work it out. So the, the, center, the center of the Catholic faith is the Eucharist and the belief in the real presence in Christ himself. And these members of the hierarchy, when they enter the hierarchy, you assume they love Christ and his church. Now, when Gregory gives communion to Biden, who facilitates the murder of millions of, of unborn babies every year by his actions, his political activities, and he endorses it publicly, they're committing a sacrilege. So what, what Gregory is saying to to uh, Biden is, I hate you. By that, I mean, he's helping him down the path to hell. Now, uh, Christ teaches us to love our fellow man, which means wish them well and do them good, as one priest told me. So if you start pushing mortal sin on somebody, pushing in that direction or fluffing their pillow, you must hate the individual. And the Pope was the vicar of Christ as a duty-bound, an obligation he should have been screaming at the top of his lungs, how dare you mock our Lord that way and scandalize the world that way? And what did he do? He told him just to work it out, which is, is like, uh, you know, it's a business owner who finds out he's got an employee that's stealing billions of dollars from people and raping children. And, and he says, oh, you guys figure it out, lets him go on. So I think that's where people have to realize that Gregory can't be Catholic and do the things he does. He can't believe in hell, and he can't believe in loving his fellow man. He can't believe in Christ and his church just by definition. I'm not judging Gregory's soul or his motives. 
I mean, that's up to the good Lord, but we have to judge actions. We judge judge actions in people every day when we hire a doctor, a teacher, a contractor. You know, we don't hire a babysitter who's uh, been convicted of killing children. You know, you're judging their actions, so to speak. The same thing is true when we look at what the priests are doing, the bishops are doing, and the pope is doing. We have to judge their actions. We, we're not doing our job. Our, we, have an op, we have a role here to play in all of this. We have to speak out. And we have to defend the faith. And uh, I would I would no more, uh, my own children, I would not endorse them in any immoral activity, illegal activity. I would admonish them. I wouldn't participate in any way. I wouldn't fluff their pillow, if you will, because I would be then responsible and have to answer to the good Lord for what I'm doing. So, again, by definition, much of our hierarchy and our Pope, they're not Catholic by definition, period. So nothing would surprise me. If they're not there for the faith, what are they there for? It's got to be the power of the money. No other solution. No other answer. Yeah, that's that. That's a real good response there, Steve. I, I had uh, Michael Hitchborn on the show about a month ago. And he certainly gave enough evidence to suggest, (laughs) I'm trying to be charitable here, that Pope Frank is indeed a communist. And you can't be a communist and a Catholic. In fact, I think it was Pope Pius IX who uh, said that, no, maybe it was Pope Leo XIII. I can't remember. Anyway... Uh, one of the two of them made it so that if you are a confessed or if you are a communist, you're automatically excommunicated. So I'm sitting here wondering, do we have an excommunicant in the chair of Peter? <laughs> well, that's definitely a possibility, and it's going to take somebody smarter than myself to figure that out. But I think that's putting it mildly because the fact that he's not Catholic is enough right. to make him not fit to be there. But a lot of people don't realize, and one thing I think needs to be understood, another thing, is the the Catholic hierarchy is in bed with the Democratic Party and the federal government. By that I mean they get millions of dollars each year, the USCCB, from the federal government for work with Catholic charities or helping the immigrants, illegal immigrants, so on and so forth. So they've got millions of dollars coming in for the federal government. And when you look at the activities of so-called Catholic politicians like Durbin and Pelosi and Biden and and, uh, so on and so forth, and the fact that they're never challenged publicly in any real way by by the USCCB or the Pope, you'll get an individual bishop that will, God bless them, stand up now and then and say something. But the fact that they're not challenged I believe it's because they don't want to uh, upset the apple cart, if you will, because these, this is the hand that feeds them. They're getting, they're getting so much federal money. It, it's crazy. But also, it sort of keeps, possibly keeps RICO lawsuits and uh, investigations at bay, if you will, because uh, there's enough here, in my mind, on these documents come out in this court case in California, there's enough here to warrant a federal investigation, because there is, I know of a corporation, I'm not going to mention it, set up in Nevada and uh, California, I'm told, first-hand testimony, that was set up specifically to launder money. And I've got the, by the wow. Catholic hierarchy. And uh, there's, I've got, I've got bank account numbers and addresses. I got bank account names. Um, I've got information on uh, some of the hierarchy involved with some of these money laundering people. I'm just not ready to go public yet at this point. But uh, again, people can get those documents. Those that are are literate in any way regarding court documents, they can go to the uh, San Bernardino County in California and find the documents themselves without me giving them a link. (coughs) Excuse me, because the case was filed there and it's on record. And uh, but I've had access to documents that aren't there yet. But there's there's fifteen hundred pages there now. Hopefully, and I and I do sincerely mean this, I hope that you raise enough hell between now and 2024 at election time if 
Trump isn't cheated out of the presidency again through these damnable voting machines, maybe because of you and your work, he will ask his attorney general to initiate an investigation. This is incredible. It's absolutely incredible. It's, it's not just me. It's people like yourself and Church Militant, Lepanto Institute, LifeSite News, and individual Catholics out there that, that help you know, financially or with information because it's uh, – somebody will ask me, how do you think of the, all these things? How do you plan it? And I say, I don't. Everything I plan, nothing works out. It always works out better. So I trust in the good Lord, and uh, I stay on the right path. And uh, I'm provided with the information I need, the connections I need. And the work you do with this podcast and whatnot, it goes a long way in helping and educating. So we're all playing a part in, uh, in this explosion of this corruption. And I think the if we work together, continue to work together, church militants give me a lot of coverage. Wanderer gave me a lot of coverage starting out. I think if we keep going, there's, there's uh, internet interviews I've done in South Africa and this country that, that have got the word out. So it all helps and everybody's doing their part. Steve, we're running short of time. So let me ask you, are you willing to come back on the show from time to time to give us updates on the things you're doing? Absolutely. I, I appreciate the opportunity. Because uh, I don't have a podcast or anything like that or a way to get information. Now, we have a website, rcf.org, but uh, you reach many more people than we do on a regular basis. And uh, it's individuals like yourself and uh, that help us. So absolutely, I'll be happy to come back on at any time and uh, as things develop and uh, say what I can say. Great. Stephen Brady, it's been great having you on The Cantankerous Catholic, and I look forward to your next visit. Take care of yourself, brother. All right. Thank you very much. All right. Bye-bye. You noticed in most of the interviews I do, I interject things I'm thinking as the session flows along. Sometimes I even sort of take over the interview. That didn't happen this time. I was so captivated with what he was saying and trying to wrap my mind around the information he was conveying that I couldn't say anything more profound than, wow. I'm providing several links pertaining to this interview in my show notes. One of the links takes you to all of the court documents in this case. In case you don't know where my show notes are, visit the website cantankerouscatholic.com. Then click on the episode tab. Then click on this particular episode and all of my show notes will appear below the podcast player. As I record this, I'm going through the documents provided by Stephen and I think you'll find them interesting too. Because Stephen Brady was exposed to the corruption of the USCCB criminal empire years before any of the rest of us realized that corruption existed, if anyone had an excuse to leave the Catholic Church, he did. He didn't do that, though. He realizes that the Catholic Church was established by Jesus Christ, God himself, for our salvation. Instead, Steve set out to right the wrongs. Over the past few months, I've had people ask me how I can justify saying the things about Pope Frank and the bishops that I say. I'm going to tell you how. I was 30 years old when I became a Catholic. As a fourth-generation Freemason, I was taught from an early age to hate the Catholic Church, so making the decision to convert wasn't easy for me. In fact, the last words I ever heard my father say on the phone was, No son of mine is a Roman Catholic. That was his way of disowning me. I gave up everything in my former life to become a Catholic. I accepted Catholic truth because it was all proven to me. First, my godfather proved to me that Jesus Christ is God. Then he proved to me that Jesus established the Catholic Church. At that point, no matter how much I turned my nose up at the idea of being Catholic, I realized it was irrational to refuse to belong to the church established by Christ. I was very well catechized. In fact, I went on to become a consecrated Marian catechist under the direction of Raymond Leo Cardinal Burke. 
I also learned apologetics and how to defend the faith. I know the faith inside out and upside down. And there's one thing about this knowledge that becomes very apparent early on. Since Jesus is God, and since he established the Catholic Church, I have an absolute right to always receive the fullness of that faith from every priest and bishop. You have an absolute right to the fullness of our faith. Because of that absolute right, you and I must continue to fight and demand that we're given the fullness of truth by these men who've been set apart for that very purpose. And that's how I justify the things I say about Pope Frank and our bishops. You shouldn't fear saying those things either. Have you ever really explored the Cantankerous Catholic website? Did you know that I have six of my own books available there? Did you know that I have t-shirts, sweatshirts, and coffee mugs available? You can accomplish three things when you buy some of my swag. Your purchase helps to support this apostolate, you'll have something to display that says you're a six-pack warrior, and you'll look just plain cool. How many Catholic apostolates can make you look cool? Click on the Joe's Stuff tab at cantankerouscatholic.com today. Let the world know you're a cool six-pack warrior. Joe Sixpack, the every Catholic guy, wants to make sure you're informed about all the Catholic news you need to know. Here's Joe Sixpack's top five Catholic news picks for this episode. Catholic news pick number five. Hats off to Fox News. Politicians of both parties paid respects to former Senate Majority Leader and presidential candidate Bob Dole, who died December 5th at 98. In 1976, President Ford selected Dole as his running mate. Dole was a Republican presidential candidate in 1996, but lost to President Bill Clinton. A World War II veteran, Dole helped raise nearly $200 million for the World War II Memorial on the National Mall. Wow! That's just incredible! You can read the whole story by clicking the link in my show notes. Catholic News Pick Number 4 Hats off to the Daily Wire CNN has fired Chris Cuomo as a CNN anchor effective immediately, the company stated December 4th. An investigation commissioned by CNN discovered more information about Cuomo's involvement in helping his brother, the former New York Governor Andrew Cuomo, during his sexual harassment scandal. You can read the whole story by clicking the link in my show notes. Catholic News Pick Number 3 Hats off to the Washington Examiner. Former Senator David Perdue is expecting to announce a primary challenge against Georgia Governor Brian Kemp. Purdue was recruited into the race by former President Donald Trump, who has repeatedly clashed with Kemp over the 2020 presidential election results in Georgia. On the Democratic side, Stacey Abrams announced her candidacy for governor last week. We're watching you. You can read the whole story by clicking the link in my show notes. Catholic News Pick Number 2 Hats off to the Daily Signal. Leah Thomas, a male University of Pennsylvania swimmer who identifies as a female, swept a number of events and broke records swimming against women. Nicole Russell writes, There are rules and regulations about transgender athletes at the collegiate level, but surely Thomas' sudden success as a transgender athlete after an average career competing as a man demonstrates that they are inequitable for women's sports and require revision. Despicable! 
You can read the whole story by clicking the link in my show notes. Catholic News Pick Number One Hats Off to the Daily Signal. For decades, Democrats accused Republicans of cutting taxes for the rich. But it's Democrats from high-tax states like New Jersey, California, and New York who push for a bigger state and local tax salt deduction. The Wharton School of the University of Pennsylvania estimated that their proposed change in the salt deduction would reduce the federal taxes of the bottom 80% by about $16 in 2022. For taxpayers in the top 1%, it would be a tax cut of nearly $16,000. What? You can read the whole story by clicking the link in my show notes. I am hard, but I am fair. It's time for the Catholic Boot Camp with your drill sergeant, Joe Sixpack. The Every Catholic Guy. Learn the Catholic faith and how to defend it like you've never heard it before. This boot camp is tough, so there's no political correctness, no spirit of Vatican II, and no namby-pamby platitudes. Drill Sergeant Joe Sixpack, the Every Catholic Guy, will prepare you for spiritual war. Now here's Joe Sixpack. You'd think communion in the hand is a simple topic that can be handled in just one Catholic boot camp segment. However, the thickest file church militant Simon Rafe has is on this topic, and this is the third of ten times we have him addressing you six-pack warriors about communion in the hand. Each week, Simon peels the onion back a little further to demonstrate how corrupt the clerics are who stole from you the sacredness of the Eucharist and just how evil communion in the hand is. I get it. Everyone listening to this show has received communion in the hand all of your lives. That's the only way you know, so it seems normal to you, while communion on the tongue while kneeling seems both odd and somewhat fanatical. But that's the point. The American bishops have lied to you and cheated you out of truth for so many years that they've managed to convince you that wrong is right and right is wrong. Thanks be to God that I was properly catechized on this when I was a catechumen 30-plus years ago, so I've never received in the hand the entire 30-plus years I've been a Catholic. I've been through the years and conflicts with many priests who've tried to force or humiliate me into receiving standing and in the hand, but I refuse their intimidation. You'll probably have to do that too, if you want to give Jesus the respect he deserves. But for now, let's listen to Simon Rafe talking about faith follows action regarding the Eucharist. And please don't forget that you can buy Simon's entire case file series on DVD by clicking the link in my show notes. A question has to be asked about communion in the hand. Does it really matter? I mean, after all, the Eucharist is Jesus Christ, right? It doesn't matter where it is. It can be reserved in the tabernacle, either centrally located behind the high altar or shoved off to the side in a little chapel. It could be exposed in a monstrance for the adoration of the faithful, or it could be locked away in the sacristy safe during the Easter Triduum. Heck, it could even be in a pyx taken to a homebound communicant or carelessly thrown to the ground by someone who doesn't care what it is. It would still be the Eucharist, still be Jesus Christ, body, blood, soul, and divinity. No matter where it is, it has the same glory and majesty. But all of those examples reveal an important point. It is true, nothing that can be done to the Eucharist can diminish its glory because the Eucharist is God. Nothing can be done to deprive God of his divinity, his majesty, and glory. But there are many things that can be done which deprive him of honor and respect, the honor and respect he deserves as Lord, creator, and redeemer of the universe. To put him in a tabernacle shunted off to an ignored side of an ugly church does not respect him. To never make actions of adoration toward him, to never genuflect before the tabernacle, to not kneel when receiving him, to never visit him in adoration, these dismiss him. To carelessly scatter particles abuses his body perhaps not in the same way as the Roman soldiers abused him, but it is still a dreadful, horrible abuse. And, of course, it's not just a matter of the respect or disrespect we show to him through our actions. 
our reverence and care, or our irreverence and indifference. There is a public aspect to how we treat the Eucharist, how we treat Jesus Christ. Our example can encourage others to reverence, or it can give scandal, that is, cause others to fall into evil or error. All of these actions, not genuflecting before Christ in the tabernacle, suppressing, banning, or discouraging adoration of the Eucharist, even carelessly scattering particles of him around, they send a very clear message. And that message is simple. The Eucharist isn't really Jesus Christ. When we fail to show reverence, our inactions or inactions say clearly, this is just bread. The same thing is true for reception of Holy Communion in the hand, and that is why that particular abuse, and make no mistake, it is an abuse, is such a big deal. The other things come as a result of this practice. They are symptoms of the full-blown disease whose first infection is communion in the hand. Don't believe me? Well, let's go back and take a look at the early years of the church. One of the first heresies was Arianism. It took hold in the 4th century and taught that Christ wasn't divine. Now, if Christ wasn't divine, then it doesn't matter what you think about the Eucharist. Even if you think the bread and wine become the body, blood, and soul of Christ, they can't become his divinity because, in your twisted heretical view, he doesn't have any divinity. In the Arians' view, the Eucharist didn't have anything really special about it. They rejected the real presence. But what is most interesting is how they chose to express that rejection of the real presence. Of course, their intellectual leaders, the adjective is used under advisement, their intellectual leaders said a lot of words and preached a lot of speeches promoting their wackadoodle theology. But these discussions, discussions about the nature of God, the union of God and man in Christ, the identity of Jesus, these discussions went over the head of the average Catholic in the pews, being abused by the bishops leading the heresy. Oh yes. This heresy was led by bishops and priests. That's the case of all heresies, by the way. Historically, every single heresy has only enjoyed any kind of success when it was backed by a bishop or three. There's a reason. They say the floor of hell is paved with their skulls. The theological discussion wouldn't have made any impact on the average Catholic just trying to survive in the Roman Empire. Discussion and argument wasn't the way to win the hearts and minds of the faithful to infidelity. But the Arian leaders had a cunning plan. Yep, you guessed it, communion in the hand. By encouraging, mandating, and practicing this method of reception, they silently and insidiously communicated a particular belief, that the Eucharist isn't anything special, that it's just bread and wine. Don't take my word for it. In the Belgian bulletin, Mysterium Fide, not to be confused with Pope Paul VI's apostolic exhortation, Mysterium Fidei, which also speaks about communion of the hand, just to confuse you, we are told... The only ones to communicate always standing and with their hands outstretched were, from the beginning, the Arians, who obstinately denied the divinity of our Lord Jesus Christ, and who could not see in the sacred Eucharist any more than a simple symbol of union which can be taken and handled at will. Arianism ended with its condemnation of the Council of Nicaea in 325 AD and the unpleasant death of Arius himself. Now, if you want to learn more about Arianism, you can watch the first episode of our series Houses Built on Sand, which discuss the heresy and its historical background. Arianism might have been formally destroyed, but denial of the Eucharist did not end there. In the 16th century, the Swadisort reformers, men like Luther, Calvin, Zwingli, and their ilk, kicked off the Protestant revolt which shook the Catholic Church to its core, resulted in the defection of millions of souls and whole nations from the faith, and whose terrible consequences are still seen today. Protestants, having jumped to the fence of the sheepfold and gone running hither and yon, pretty much wearing signs reading free lunches in whatever language wolves speak, are shorn of the unifying influence of the chief shepherd Peter, and so agree on pretty much nothing. But while they are absolutely sure other Protestants are wrong about almost everything, the one thing they can all agree on is that the Catholic Church is totally wrong, and nowhere is this more true than when it comes to the Eucharist. Whatever Protestants believe, it isn't what the Church teaches. Even higher, more liturgical Protestants, like Lutherans and Anglicans, teach something contrary to the faith. Most Protestants, Baptists, Calvinists, others, explicitly say that the bread and wine used in the communion service is just that, bread and wine, nothing more than a symbol. Of course, most of today's Protestants have only ever experienced Protestantism. Even ex-Catholics among them often didn't have the authentic Catholic experience when it came to the Eucharist. In too many parishes today, there is a lack of reverence shown, and the doctrine of the real presence of Jesus Christ, body, blood, soul, and divinity, present in the Eucharist, isn't taught. But that wasn't the case for the first generation of Protestants. The men and women who were preached to and harangued to give up the faith and the faith of their fathers by Luther, Calvin, and their ilk. 
These people had been accustomed to seeing the priest alone touch the Eucharist with his consecrated hands. They had grown up receiving Holy Communion on their tongue and while kneeling. Old habits die hard, so many of these former Catholics continued to receive on their tongue and while kneeling early on in these Protestant communities. This traditional practice might not have been a formal catechism, a creedal statement of belief in a doctrine, but it sent a clear message to those communicants. There is something special about the Eucharist, and therefore something special about the one who consecrates and distributes it. Luther and his fellow traitors, agents of darkness if ever there were, couldn't let that stand. They were rebelling not just against the teaching of the church, but against the whole notion of the sacramental priesthood. If their revolt against Christ's church were to succeed, they had to get the people to reject Christ's ministers. Stopping reverential reception of Holy Communion was one of their first attempts to achieve this evil end. One of the greatest proponents of communion in the hand during the early decades of the Protestant revolt was Martin Butcher. He was not only a former Catholic, but also a Dominican friar. He had great impact on Lutheran and Calvinist practice, but it was his influence over Anglicanism which was the most significant. It was Butcher who urged Archbishop Thomas Cranmer, the theological architect behind the English Reformation which led to the foundation of the modern Church of England, to change the Anglican liturgy. Prior to Butcher's suggestions, people knelt when the prayers of consecration were said and received kneeling and on the tongue. Gradually, under Butcher's influence, the Book of Common Prayer, that's the Anglican Missal, was changed. First, it permitted reception standing and in the hand. Then, it encouraged it. Then, reception on the tongue was merely tolerated. Finally, it was banned. In addition, a commentary was inserted saying that while it was permitted to kneel during the consecration, this was not to be done out of adoration because the bread and wine were not God. Of course, apostolic succession was broken with the Anglican break from Rome, but the theological thrust of the Protestant rebels was clear. The Eucharist is not special. The priesthood is not special. We are all equal. There is no distinctiveness between the sacred and the profane. Now, perhaps they didn't go quite as far as to say there is no distinction between us and God. But the dreadful dark seeds of those dark thorns of denial of sin and the necessity for redemption were sown as the host was placed in the hands of the first generation of Protestants. And don't think that this was just an Anglican problem. In his book, Dominus Est, It is the Lord, Bishop Athanasius Schneider argues strongly for a return to communion on the tongue while kneeling and against the modernist practice of reception standing and in the hand. He points out that some synods of the Calvinist Church of Holland in the 16th and 17th centuries established formal bans on receiving communion kneeling. Very early, the people might have received communion kneeling, but several synods forbade this in order to avoid any suggestion that the bread was being venerated. But it wasn't just Dutch Calvinists in the Renaissance who practiced this. Stay in Holland, but fast forward 300 years to the 1960s and another rebellion against the church's teaching. It might have been another rebellion, but it was the same old ideas, attacking the real presence and the sacramental priesthood. In Holland, in 1965, communion was already being given in the hand, in defiance of the express prohibition against this practice by Rome. The cause of and reason for this rebellion was revealed a year later, when the infamous New Catechism, later known as the Dutch Catechism, was published. This catechism was dreadful, full of errors. The Vatican demanded the correction of 14 major points and a mind-blowing 44 minor ones. And that was probably just the Vatican being polite. When you were dealing with the faith handed on to us by Jesus Christ himself for the salvation of souls, ain't no points that are minor. And what were these points? Well, hold on to your hats. Ladies, grab your veils, because they were the old Protestant chestnuts of the Eucharist and the priesthood. The real and substantial presence of Christ in the Eucharist wasn't clearly declared, transubstantiation wasn't explained, and the idea that Christ was present in particles of the Eucharist which became separated was actually denied. Additionally, the Dutch Catechism failed to clearly distinguish between the sacramental priesthood, that's the hierarchical priesthood of priests and bishops, and the common priesthood of the faithful. All of us, by virtue of our baptism, share in Christ's identity as priest, prophet, and king, but the sacramental priesthood shares fully in it, in Alto Christus, another Christ. These men, and they must be men, cannot be women, have a role distinct and different from the laity. The Dutch Catechism blurred that distinction, setting the stage for all kinds of confusion. The Dutch hierarchy didn't meekly and humbly accept Rome's corrections. They fought it tooth and nail for years. Now, the notion that Catholic bishops resisted these corrections about core beliefs in the Eucharist and the priesthood is hard to fathom, but it happened. 
So what do we have? Arius in the 4th century, Butcher and the Anglicans in the 16th, the Calvinists in the 17th, and the Dutch bishops in the 20th. All of them directed people to stand for communion and receive it in their hands, in many cases forbidding reception kneeling and on the tongue. They chose these methods precisely in order to teach the people through example what perhaps they could not afford yet to teach through explicit statements. Remember, even the dreadful Dutch catechism did its worst damage through what it did not say, rather than outright heresy. Actions often speak louder than words, and silence on the subject of the Eucharist and the priesthood, coupled with the casual, irreverent example of receiving communion standing and in the hand, conveyed a very clear message about these central Catholic doctrines, that they were unimportant or optional at best, and false at worst. The faith of the people followed their actions, their actions implicitly denying the real presence, leading in many cases to an explicit denial of the real presence. The rebellions were dreadfully, terribly successful. But the rebellions did not go unopposed. Bishop Athanasius of Alexandria led the charge against Arius, the intellectual giants of the Counter-Reformation fought against the Protestant revolt, and, of course, today there are many men who have fought on Christ's side in the civil war raging inside the church herself against the priests and bishops who are agents of darkness, promoting communion in the hand as a means of denying the real presence and mingling the sacred and the profane. Men such as Father John Harden, a Jesuit of incredible learning and holiness who spent his last years in Detroit and said, Behind communion in the hand, I wish to repeat and make as plain as I can, is a weakening, a conscious, deliberate weakening of faith in the real presence. Whatever you can do to stop communion in the hand will be blessed by God. Bishops like Athanasius Schneider, author of the book Dominus Est, which calls for a rejection of communion in the hand and a return to the ancient and reverential practice of reception on the tongue and kneeling. Also, Bishop Rodolfo Leys of Argentina, who, after standing alone against his fellow bishops in speaking against the abuse, wrote the excellent book Communion in the Hand, Documents in History. Speaking about the situation in the Low Countries in the 1960s specifically, and promotion of communion in the hand in general, he wrote, If we take into account that this is the doctrinal climate in which communion in the hand was introduced, we will understand why Paul VI was preoccupied with preventing the spread of dangerous, false opinions about the Holy Eucharist, sustained precisely by the promoters of the disobedience that introduced the right. And yes, the Pope since Vatican II. Although it is perhaps fashionable today to think that these men, Paul VI, John Paul II, Benedict XVI, and Francis, have done nothing to discourage this abuse, and have allowed it to flourish, and even promoted it. But that is a lie by the agents of darkness, men who hope through obfuscations and misdirections and outright lies they can convince you that the Vatican is in agreement with them. Unfortunately for them, the evidence shows a radically different picture from the one they want you to see. And guess what? My team's digging that up right now. I've been sharing the faith with people for over 30 years. The Holy Spirit has used me to make hundreds of converts and 84 of them are my adult godchildren. When the Holy Spirit works through us in a big way, He usually uses the talents given to us before we were even born. When we develop those talents for Him, we're often impelled to pass on to others what we've done and how we've done it for the greater glory of God. That's why I wrote the Lay Evangelist Handbook. You might say the Lay Evangelist Handbook was 30 years in the making, because in this book I share with you all the best that I've learned about how to share the faith with laps and non-Catholics, so you can bring your friends and family to the fullness of divinely revealed truth. The very first chapter gives you a thorough explanation of the things you need to do to maximize your effectiveness so you won't end up with egg on your face when trying to engage people. I explain the differences between the various types of lay evangelists and others you can learn from. I even talk about some statistics that should help give you a real sense of urgency for sharing the faith. Then I get to the step-by-step -step process for sharing the faith. I give a full presentation of the exact text I've used and refined for 30 years. I tell you what to do, what to say, and how to do and say it, while leaving room for you to work in your own personality and make these techniques your own. There's no other book like this on the market. So get your print or ebook copy of the Lay Evangelist Handbook today. It's available in print on cantankerouscatholic.com or in print and ebook on Amazon and Barnes & Noble. 
Catholic Church is 2,000 years old. A lot of wisdom is gained over two millennia. Each week we'll share some of that wisdom with a Catholic quote. So here's this week's Catholic quote. This week's Catholic quote is from St. Rose of Lima. She said, Apart from the cross, there is no other ladder by which we may get to heaven. I believe a really great way to teach the faith is through stories, parables, and anecdotes. So here's today's story. After World War I, a prominent cardinal visited a hospital where blind soldiers were being treated. Some of the men were partially blind, others totally blind. Among all the men there, his eminence heard one of them praying, Lord, I beg you not to take the light of my eyes. But if it is your will that I should be deprived of it, leave me then at least the light of my mind. But if it's your wish that I be deprived of that, leave me at least the light of my faith. The cardinal walked over to his bed. Where did you learn that beautiful prayer, my son? Oh, are you the cardinal who was to visit us this afternoon? Yes, replied the cardinal. The blind soldier told him, When I was a boy, I used to take the old cardinal of Mainz in Austria into his garden and attend him there. He was ninety years old then. I heard him say that prayer often. I never forgotten it. The soldier felt that losing his eyesight or even losing his mind wouldn't be so terrible as losing his faith. Faith is your greatest gift from God, because faith will lead you to God and the eternal life he created you for. Although sinning against faith is bad, you should mostly avoid sins that can lead to a loss of faith, namely, indifference and carelessness in the practice of your Catholic faith. Hey, six-pack warriors, before you leave this episode, be sure to go to my show notes and click on the subscribe link. Just pick Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or Amazon Music, whichever one you want to subscribe through. You don't have to subscribe to hear the show, but the more subscribers there are, the more these platforms will make the cantankerous Catholic known to Catholics looking for good podcasts. And please leave a review on Apple Podcasts or whatever platform you use. The more reviews, the more the show gets shown to Catholics looking for good podcasts. And I thank you. This has been The Cantankerous Catholic with Joe Sixpack, the Every Catholic Guy. Thanks for subscribing, and be sure to visit cantankerouscatholic.com to get your free copy of Joe's popular book, The Best of What We Believe, Why We Believe It.